as my official costume. Do you get it? Yeah, okay. If you're, uh, if you're a fan of the office out there, then you get it. You can have me as regular Corey or three-hole punch Corey. You're welcome. Uh, so before we jump into the message, I just want to take a minute to say uh, thank you to all of you for uh, the dinner last Sunday and, and the gifts and things. Uh, Amber and I appreciate that uh, very much. Don't we, Amber? Yes. Okay. Uh, and so uh, just love uh, being able to, to, to serve you and uh, love to, to see what God is doing um, through our church and, and in our lives. And so um, th- thank you for that, Andrew, and I appreciate that, and Amber, as well. Um, so over the last six weeks, we've been on this journey of freedom with the people of, of Israel from slavery and then into, um, we'll just call it salvation, right? So they're They've been slaves for like 250 years in Egypt, and then they've been brought out of that uh, and and saved from that slavery as as God miraculously and powerfully brings them out of Egypt. And perhaps no story has been um, used more than Israel's story of, of, of exodus and of freedom to rally the cause of freedom and renounce the practice of slavery um, since that day. We go back to the 1960s, Martin Luther uh, King Jr. repeatedly referenced Exodus imagery while fighting for civil rights. And and I think rightly so. Still today, whether we're taking on racism or we're fighting against human trafficking, I believe God hears, God knows, and God cares when people are oppressed, any people, any place are oppressed for any reason. And, and I think if I could just kind of, I'm just going to jump up on the soapbox a little bit uh, as we start out here this morning and, and, and just say that, you know, a, a lot of times we as Christians in our um, self-righteousness, we can oppress those that we uh, deem sinners, right? And so we might pick out a, a people group or, or somebody who's doing a certain thing and we're going to go... You're a sinner, and, and God doesn't like you, and, and we want to get, you know, up in arms about that. But I think any time that any person or any group of people are oppressed, those oppressors are standing in the way of the love of God for that individual. Jesus loved and served even the one who betrayed him. And so using our faith as Christians as a means to fuel hate or violence toward anyone will put us in direct conflict with the ways and the word of God. And so, uh, as just as a believer, let me just apologize to lots of different people in lots of different places where the church has stepped in and oppressed and, and, and ridiculed and put down because we didn't like what you were doing. I don't think that's the way God would have us treat others. Part of why the Exodus story is significant, though, is that it establishes some important images about who God is. Remember that the Israelites were were doing their best to follow this God that they really didn't know, right? We've said from the beginning, they kind of knew about God, 
They didn't really know God. And so the story of the Exodus is God revealing his character and who he was to this people who didn't really know him so that they would learn to trust and follow him for the rest of their lives. That they would learn to understand who he was so that they could then trust him as they faced the, the different troubles that they were going to face in life. So we're going to take a look at some of the things that we've learned about God through the story of the Hebrew people and uh, over the course of this time in this series. So let's look at, uh, at, at several things here. Number one, we learn that God may be silent, but he's never absent. God hears, God knows, and God cares, even when we feel like God is distant. Like that's a feeling we get sometimes. Our prayers are just kind of hitting the ceiling and falling back to us. And we're like, God, where are you? Why aren't you present? Why aren't you involved in our lives? But that's how we feel. It's not the reality of the situation. And so we learned with the Israelite people that even when God is silent, he's not absent. He's still there. He still hears. He's still working just in ways that you maybe don't see. The second thing we learned is that um, God is the only one who can offer real and lasting freedom. And, and even when that freedom is from ourselves, because a lot of the struggles and a lot of the things that we face in life happen because we've made a choice or we've done a thing that has put us in a situation that's difficult. And so God is the only one who offers us real freedom in, in life. Third, we learned that God doesn't need our approval, but he does want our acceptance. We've got to trust what he's done, even when we don't understand what he's doing. And, and so that's what we're, we're called, a, a, a long faithfulness in the same direction allows us to look back on the things that God has done and the ways that he has saved us and been involved in our lives so that we can trust him in this new situation, a new struggle. The fourth thing we learned is that God's sovereignty demands our surrender. That God is sovereign. He's the one true God over all other gods. And so because he's sovereign, he demands our surrender. And, and the struggle for most of us is, really the struggle for all of us is, that the last God that has to be defeated in our lives as we come to know Jesus and follow him, that we be disciple of him, the last God that's always to be defeated is, is the God of me. The things that I want and the things that I want to do. And, and God is sovereign even over my own personal sovereignty. We learned also that trust in God is best developed through trying times. When life is difficult, when we're struggling, that's when that trust is developed. When everything is going good, we don't typically worry about God, think about God. In fact, that was the story for the first couple hundred years of Israel in the land of Goshen. They had everything they wanted. They had plenty of land. They had plenty of food. They had a great situation. And so they just didn't think about God very much. They didn't care a lot about God. And so that's what happens after 430 years of being in Egypt and 250 years of slavery. They're crying out to God now because they, they got comfortable. And they stopped following and, and listening and paying attention to him. And so those difficult times develop that trust in God. We also learned that God doesn't just want us to worship him. He wants us to walk with him throughout the week, really every day of the week. 
Because he's powerful, he's present, and he's a personal God. He wants to be involved with us in relationship each and every day and not just on Sundays as we come together. And so when I look at the the Exodus story, I see a really pretty simple process of a God and a people who are trying to figure out how to do life together. What is this relationship going to look like? How do we follow this God? What are his expectations? And then what is he going to provide? And so um, let's kind of take maybe a little bit of a step back. We've, We've covered a lot of ground over the last six weeks. And let's kind of look at the Exodus story kind of like a a wedding story. Both parties have to get to know one another before they decide to enter into that covenant relationship. And if you've been in a relationship before, you understand that. Like at the beginning, you're like, I kind of like this person. You know, maybe they're attractive or whatever. We're going to spend a little time together. I kind of like their personality. Let's spend a little more time together. And so it takes time to develop that relationship until you come to the point where you're like, I think, I think that I might... I might really love this person. And then I think I might want to marry this person. And then I might want to spend the rest of my life with this person. And so the Exodus story really is kind of like this wedding story where you're learning and figuring out what the covenant relationship looks like. And last week we talked about the Israelites all at the foot of the mountain of of Sinai. God gives the the, the covenant relationship. He said, here's what this relationship is going to be about. You do the things that I want you to do, and then I'm going to be your God. You, I'll, you'll be my people. I'll be your God. And that covenant was finalized at Mount Sinai. It, it's like the people and God made their vows at that time together. Now, in a modern wedding ceremony, the, the covenant vows are commemorated with the giving and receiving of rings. And, and I, don't, I don't wear a wedding ring anymore. I had my wedding ring tattooed on. Uh, I had the same problem that lots of people have. Uh, as you get older, especially if you have a wife who can cook as good as mine, um, your wedding ring becomes uh, tighter. And uh, so I just was really struggling with it. I said, okay, I'm just done with this. And so I'm going to go uh, get this tattoo on and I won't have to have to worry about. But rings Rings are a present reminder that we take with us everywhere of the vows that we made on that day, right? And so when I do a wedding ceremony, I I talk about that. Um, As you wear these rings, whether together or apart, may they be constant reminders of the vows that you make today. Now, a ring doesn't really have any power in and of it itself, right? You, you have the opportunity, you have the ability to take it off and set it aside. If you watch any Lifetime movies, you know that that is the precursor to getting stepping outside of the circle of your marriage with your spouse. And a man or a woman, they take their ring off, they set it on the counter, the, the dresser or whatever, and you know something, something not right is about to happen. And so rings don't really have any power in and of themselves, but they do remind us of our commitment. And memories are very powerful things. Years ago, I uh, taught a class to incoming freshmen at the um, uh, National American University. And it was a curriculum that was given to me, and then I just taught it and, and shared it. But one of the things they talked about was how we think 
and how, how we think affects the things that we do, right? So, so National American University has a lot of um, people who are like non-traditional students. They had difficulty in other schools or situations, and so they, they come to um, NAU. And, uh, and so we want to help them do the best that they can by sharing this information, good study habits and skills and life skills and things like that. And we talked a lot about how our brain works to help us function. Memories are powerful because they're tied to emotion. And one of the things I learned while teaching that class was that when you remember a specific event that happened in your life, whether that was a, a, a powerful event, like a really great event, you were really happy, or if it was something that was really terrible, like it happened to you or something that you did that you regret that was just a bad decision, whether it's on either side of that spectrum, when you remember that event, those emotional things and chemicals come back into your mind and your brain cannot separate the memory from the actual event. Let me explain it um, this way. When I think of, uh, this is what happens for me, I'm laying in bed at night and I remember, typically I remember the negative things that I did. Like I said this thing, I did this thing, that was, was really dumb, I shouldn't have done that. Uh, but whether it's a, a positive or a negative thing, when you remember it, all of that stuff comes flooding back and your brain actually thinks that the event happened again. So if you're thinking about negative things, of like, that was really stupid, I can't believe I did that, I really screwed that up, you're like putting more uh, rocks in that bucket, and it's just getting bigger and bigger. It's a single event, but as you remember it, it feels like it happened over and over and over again. The same thing happens, though, when we think positively. We remember the positive things we did that day. Oh, I said this, and that went well. I was accommodating. I was kind. I, you know, this, I was succeeded in this area. We put more rocks in that bucket. And, and so that's just how the brain kind of, of works. And so whether it's a positive or negative emotion, a single event can feel like it's happened over and over and over and over again. Let me give you a really uh, uh, super good example. If you're married, you're going to understand this immediately. Um, your wife or your husband does something that irritates you, and you think about it later, right? So it's those nitpicky things. Go, oh, oh I did, he did it, she did it, whatever, and you think about it, and you think about it. And every time you think about that, it's like it happened again. And so what happens in the next conversation? You come up, and you go, you always do this. Well, no, that's probably not accurate, but that's how we remember it, because every time we remember it, it feels like it's happening again. Okay, are you with me? Do we get that uh, covered? Um, okay, so whether we're talking about your marriage, or your job, or being a parent, or your faith, if you're going to remain in relationship, you've got to remember your reason. If you're going to remain in relationship, you've got to remember your reason. Why? Because memories are powerful. And as we remember that moment, as you remember that day, as you stood at the front of the church and the doors opened and, 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 and your bride came out, as you remember that day, it's as though it's happening again. 
And those emotions get stronger and stronger. And so if you're going to remain in relationship, if you're going to remain in your job, if you're going to remain a a powerful parent, if you're going to remain in any relationship, you've got to remember the reason. What is it that causes me? Why do I get up every morning and do this? Why do I love this person so much? What is the reason? What first attracted you to your spouse? Her smile? Or, or maybe his kindness? Was it that first attracted you? The more often you remember it, the more positive feelings you're going to have towards your spouse. What is it about your job that, that you like? Or what is it that your job allows you to do? Maybe to provide for your family? To, to pay the bills? To take them places? Um, maybe your job provides you the opportunity to travel. And you enjoy that about your job. What is it that you like, the positive thing that's going to feed that bucket that you have? What did God rescue you from? Or how did he first speak to you that kind of changed the course of your life? As we remember those moments, they become fuel that pushes us in one direction or the other. And so if you forget your reason, then the relationship with your job, with your spouse, your kids, that relationship is going to falter. So, as we're going through the story of Exodus, we got all the way to Mount Sinai, the beginning of the covenant, kind of their marriage relationship started. Now we're going to go back to chapter 12. And we're going to spend the day in chapter 12, the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter. And so um, let's jump in there. Exodus chapter 12, we're going to start with verse Verse 1. This is a big section of text, so just hang with me. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt. Okay, they haven't left Egypt yet. This is like right before that event happens. He says, this month is to be for you the first month. The first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. One for each household. And if any household is too small for a whole lamb, they've got to share one with the nearest neighbor in any way so there's not too much and, and not too little according to the number of people that are in the house. You are determined the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year old males and without defect. You can take them from either the sheep or the goats, but take care of them until the 14th day of the month. So they got to live with you for four days, and you got to make sure that they don't get hurt because they can't have any defects. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all of the members of the community of Israel then slaughter them at, at twilight. So you're going to bring this lamb into your house. If you've got young kids, just think about this. You're going to bring the, ha- the lamb into your home. You're going to care for it carefully because it can't get hurt. For four days, that lamb is going to be with you in your home. And then on the fourth day, lamb chops, okay? So imagine your kids just begin to get, you know, connected to this little lamb and then, and then dead, okay? Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the top, the doorposts and the lintel of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Now that same night, They are to eat the meat of the lamb roasted over the fire along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast, unleavened bread. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roast it over a fire. We're not going to talk about this later, but that's the quickest way 
to, to cook the lamb, in case you wondered. You're to roast it over the fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it, which you've already got the fire, right? So it's easy to do that. This is how you are to eat it. With your cloak tucked into your belt, so your outer garment tucked up into your, the belt or the sash. With your sandals on your feet, with your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Now it goes back to what we talked about in the beginning, like the ten plagues, right? This is the last of the ten plagues. And, and in the last plague, God finally takes a command. He has more power than the number one god of the Egyptians, the god Ra, who was like over all the other gods and the god that gave life and took it, okay? So God is asserting his power and authority over all of the gods of Egypt. Then he says, I am the Lord. And the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. But when I see the blood, I will pass over that house and no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Now this passage, this chapter is really interesting um, to me for several reasons. Number one, God resets the Jewish calendar to coincide with the Exodus. Okay, did you catch that in the beginning of that chapter? He said, this month is to be for you the first month. And so their entire calendar system changes on this one event. What's about to take place is so big that they have to change the calendar to coincide with it. Secondly, God tells the people what's going to happen, right? He says, I'm going to pass through the land. I'm going to see the blood on the doorpost. And then, and then the plague or the destructive angel, destroying angel, is going to skip that house, pass over that house. Thirdly, God tells the people how to prepare for what's going to happen. You slaughter the lamb, you put the blood on the doorpost and, and the lintel, and, and then you're going to be okay. You're going to be saved from the death that is coming. The fourth thing that happens in the chapter is that God tells the people how they are to celebrate what's going to happen after it happens. So you're going to celebrate this. This is what you're going to do. You're going to have this big feast and, and, and whatever. You're going to slaughter them. You're going to do all these things after this happens. And then the fifth thing that happens in the chapter is that, is that what God says is going to happen actually happens. Okay? So chapter 12 kind of lays all of this stuff out. And then at the end of the chapter, God gives another rundown of the rules for, uh, for this Passover meal. So I want to look at that really quickly. Once again, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, these are the regulations for the Passover meal. And he's already told them what the Passover is, what's going to happen, when it's going to happen, how you're going to deal with it, how you're going to celebrate it after it happens. And then he says, these are the regulations for that meal. No foreigner may eat it. Any slave you have bought may eat it after you have circumcised him, but a temporary resident or a hired worker may not eat it. It must be eaten inside the house. Take none of the meat outside the house. 
Do not break any of the bones. That's just a repeat of what he'd said before. The whole community of Israel must celebrate it. A foreigner residing among you who wants to celebrate the last, the Lord's Passover, must have all the males of his household circumcised. And then he may take part like one born in the land, like a native there. No uncircumcised male can eat the Passover. Now, this same law applies to both native-born and to the foreigner residing among you. And all the Israelites did just as the Lord has commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the Israelites out of Egypt by their divisions. So I'm going to look at these um, restrictions for the Passover. He says, no foreigner can eat it. No one who is not an Israelite, a Jewish person, a Hebrew person, by born, they're all synonymous with each other, uh, can eat it. Okay, that's the first command, but I want you to hold on to that because we're going we're gonna to circle back to that in, in just a minute. So no foreigner may eat it. The second thing he says, that no, he says no slave um, c- can eat the Passover. But I, I want to make sure, because we, we see this word come up in Scripture several times, and, and you just got to know that, that God is delivering his people out of slavery in, in Egypt. The Egyptian people oppressed the Israelites. They treated them as, as property, right? They treated them poorly. They oppressed them in slavery. And, and now we, we read, God's like, well, look, any slave that you have, and I just want to make sure you understand that when the Bible uses the term slave in relation to the Israelite people, it isn't really talking about slaves as we in America understand slavery or even slavery for the, for the Israelites in Egypt. Over and over and over again, God is consistent in saying that he hates slavery. He hates uh, one human trying to own another human or control them in some way. Like, that's not what God is about. And so when you see that term, almost always the word slave in the Jewish concept is better understood as a bond servant. And so what would happen is if I, owned, if I owed a debt to uh, somebody... I owed a debt to somebody, and I didn't have the money to pay it. Somebody else may come along and say, well, look, I'll pay your debt to this person over here, and then you come and work for me until that debt is is paid off. I'll provide you with food and housing and those kind of things, and then you work off your debt. That is the understanding of slavery in, in the Israel, okay? In fact, when Israel stands at the mountain and they're getting the rules and the regulations for God, God is like, do not own slaves. You were a slave in Egypt. You are not to do that to any, anybody else. So it makes no sense at all that God would talk about slavery in, in, in Israel unless he's talking about this bond servant kind of um, relationship. So I just want to make sure that we get that. So any, any bond servant that you might have cannot eat the Passover, or they can eat the Passover meal once they have been circumcised. And, and the reason for that is, again, a bondservant would kind of be a part of your family. They wouldn't have um, heir uh, rights to the family, but they would live with and spend time with it to be like they were part of the family. And so if they were circumcised, they could participate in Passover um, with the family. 
The third thing he says is that a temporary resident or a hired worker shouldn't eat the Passover. He says actually can't eat the Passover. And, and there's a reason for that. These people, um, temporary residents or hired workers, they're people who would come into town during harvest and they would work during that time, but their intent was to go back to their home. So while they were in Israel, they would continue to worship their gods, they would continue to do that, and they would, in, they would go back home then and just pick up their life whenever, wherever they left it. And so a temporary resident or hired worker was not to eat the Passover um, meal with, with the Israelites. He also says that the meal was to be eaten inside the house. It was not to be out, eaten outside and that you were not to break any of the bones of the animals. The reason for that is that this Passover meal was supposed to be a, a special meal, a sacred meal for the people. And, and so these regulations are like God is saying, look, don't treat this like every other meal you have. It, it's not like that. It's special. It's set apart. And so there are specific things that you should do as you celebrate this meal together. And, and then he says that the meal really is supposed to be a community meal. You're supposed to share this meal together as a community. It's a shared experience. And, and sometimes if you didn't have very many people in your house and your neighbor didn't have very many people in their house, you could come together to eat the Passover meal and, and you would have a, a lamb that would meet the, need, the food needs of that whole group of people. And, and so um, if you've watched the show Chosen, they have a Passover meal and they invite people into their home and they all share that meal together. And so even though everybody's not in the same place eating the Passover meal together, they are eating it at the same time, and so that builds that sense of community. I, I think a, a modern-day understanding of that might be um, we're about to celebrate Thanksgiving, right? And most people in America, I would assume most, certainly more than half the people in America, celebrate a Thanksgiving meal on the evening of Thanksgiving, and their family comes together, and they, they get together, and they, and they do that. And we're not all together sharing in that Thanksgiving meal, but we do know that people all over the country are sharing in a similar meal in their homes together, and that helps build that community. The sixth thing he says is that a foreigner who is a resident and who wants to celebrate the Passover may eat it if they follow all the rules and the males in their house are circumcised. They can eat it like a native-born Israelite. And so here's where we go back to number one. God said a foreigner cannot eat the Passover meal. And then later he says, ah, a, a foreigner can. So that seems like, you're like, wait a minute, that seems odd. Like, why is he saying that? Well, he makes a, a designation here. He says there's a difference here. It's a foreigner who wants to be a resident. So a foreigner who's moved into Israel, who understands Israel's God and what Israel God expects and wants to be a part of the nation, that person, if they circumcise the males in their family, can eat the Passover meal with the nation of Israel as though they were native born. A foreigner who just comes into your country that doesn't want to worship your God, that doesn't want to follow your rules, that doesn't want to do the things that God prescribes for you to do, that person cannot eat the Passover meal. In fact, the restrictions go so far as to say if a foreigner comes in and, and doesn't worship God but wants to eat the Passover meal, you are to kick them out of the nation. 
like not let them live there. Like this is a big deal. This is a serious moment. And so there's a distinction between the foreigner who still worships their own gods and the foreigner who comes in to be a part of Israel and to worship Israel's God. Now, the laws surrounding the Passover, there's a last thing in those requirements. And really all the Jewish laws, if you read through the covenant between God and the people, the laws that God gives, they apply to everyone who wants to be a part of the people of God. Remember, there was maybe several million Egyptians who left Egypt with the Israelites. Several million people, maybe four, five, six, seven. I've heard as many as nine million people. Uh, That might be a little steep. But many millions of people left Egypt with Israel because of the power that God displayed in the plagues. And they were like, that's the God we want to follow. And so they left. And so as God gives these requirements, he's saying, look, you got a whole bunch of foreign people here who want to be a part of your nation. They want to worship me because they saw the power. They saw the way I brought you out of Egypt. And if they want to follow the rules, you are to treat them as though they are a native-born person. Now, I've thrown a whole bunch of information at you today, and I I understand that. But hopefully, just stick with me, because it's all about to make sense. So we've gone through all of these requirements, all of this stuff about the Passover meal. And the reason we want to look at these things is because of all the stuff that happened in the book of Exodus and the story of the Exodus of the people. Of all the stuff that happened, there's only one thing that God told the people to commemorate. And that's the Passover. That's why we're going back to chapter 12. And so I want to jump now to John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John, this is not the writer of the book. This is John the Baptist. John the author is writing about this story. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, where did we hear that? The lamb was the Passover sacrifice. And the blood of the lamb was put on the lintel and the doorpost of the home and protected the people from death. Okay? Let's go then to um, Mark. This is Mark 14, 12. Um, Jesus has been in about three and a half years of ministry. It's the end. He's nearing the end. He's back in Jerusalem and just a few days, he's, he's going to die. In fact, at this point, a few hours, he's going to die. On the first day of the Festival of Unleavened Bread. Festival, do you know what that is? It's the Passover. The requirements for the Passover in Exodus chapter 12 was that the Passover would start with a Passover meal on the 14th day of the first month. It would last for seven Days On the first day, you clean all the leaven out of your house. You share in this meal where you offer the lamb, the sacrifice. Uh, You put the blood on your doorpost. And then it's a seven-day feast after that called the Festival of Unleavened Bread. On the first day, the 14th of the month, Festival of Unleavened Bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? The Passover meal was celebrated on the first day 
of the seven-day festival of unleavened bread, commemorating the release of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and specifically the night that all people, regardless of nationality, would be spared from death if they took the blood of the sacrificial lamb and they put it on the lintel and doorpost, marking their homes. They would be spared. It was, it was this night that this celebration begins, right after Jesus had washed the disciples' feet, he'd shared in the traditional Passover meal, that he then institutes the act of communion, what we call sometimes the Lord's Supper. After that is over, Jesus and the disciples, they leave Jerusalem, they cross the Kidron Valley, and they go into the Mount of Olives. And if you've read the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you know that this is a place Jesus spent a lot of, of time. They go to the Mount of Olives for a reason. And the reason is that in Exodus chapter 12, verse 42, part of the command of the Passover is to keep vigil all night to commemorate how God watched over the people all night long until Pharaoh told them to leave. So Jesus and the disciples go to the Mount of Olives to pray to keep vigil with God over that night. And it was during this time, while they're in the Mount of Olives, that the disciples fall asleep, and then Jesus is arrested. The next day, which is just a few hours later, is the first full day of that seven-day festival of unleavened bread, and it's the day that Jesus was tried and convicted and then killed as our sacrifice for our sin, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. And so we have to ask ourselves this question, why did God spend so much time on the Exodus story and specifically the details surrounding the Passover? It's because it wasn't just about God rescuing Israel from slavery in Egypt. It was about God's plan to rescue the entire world from the slavery of sin and death. And so just as Israel participated in the Passover meal, we share in the Lord's meal. And so anyone who is not a follower or a disciple of Jesus, who doesn't believe in the God of the Bible, shouldn't participate in communion. If you're checking things out, but you're not committed to the covenant of faith with God through Jesus, if you don't recognize the sacrifice of Jesus, as John said, Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, if that's not who Jesus is to you, you probably should not take communion. Communion also is a sacred meal. It should be respected and honored. And so it's not a time to, to talk or chat or to catch up. It's a time to reflect and remember what Jesus did. Communion should be eaten together in community. It's a shared experience that binds us to Jesus and that sacrifice and to each other. We do this together. And anyone who has aligned themselves with God's people and come into God's kingdom 
through faith in King Jesus. And obedience, the belief and repent and confession and baptism. Anybody who comes from outside of the church in and says, I want to be a part of this kingdom is free to take communion. This is a meal that binds us together as we remember the true sacrificial lamb of God in Jesus who died on the cross, freeing us from our slavery to sin. He did that for everybody, not just us. That's why it's difficult for us to oppress other people because Jesus died for them too. But as we come together and we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, we remember our reason. And it binds us even stronger to both God and each other. From the very beginning of this series, I have told you that the Exodus was bigger than Israel and Egypt. And this is why. As we take communion together, we remember the sacrifice of Jesus that points us to the love of God and our own freedom from slavery and sin and death. And so here's what I think God has been trying to tell us throughout this series throughout the Exodus story and it's that the Exodus is for everybody God offers the same freedom from sin and slavery and death the same freedom to each of us and to every other person in the world just as he offered it to the Israelites and he says look here's what you do you trust me and you come into this covenant relationship and then I'll be your God and you'll be my people. The Exodus is for everyone because we're all slaves to the things that control us. And Jesus came to set us free. He is the bread from heaven. And it's his blood that cleanses us from sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for the Exodus story. We can look back on, and with with Israel, we can remember the power and the might and the passion with which you brought your people out of their slavery and certain death. And God, we we thank you for it even more because in Jesus, we, we see that the Exodus, it wasn't just about Israel, that it pointed to your son who would come to save the world from sin and death. And so, Father, thank you for calling us to be a part of your family, for making room for us among the people of God. Father, may we remember this story of Exodus, coming out of darkness. We remember how to follow a God that hopefully by this time we know trust. Father, would you help us as Israel was to do to extend the same grace and mercy and hope and love to every other person and invite them to be a part of your family just as we have been adopted in. Thank you, God, for this picture and for the exodus that's happened in our lives. 
We've left the old self behind. And we put on the new in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. We have come to that portion of our service for communion. Uh, before I get into my little talk, just remind everybody that we have communion tables, uh, four of them, two on the side, one in the back, one over here. We ask that it's open to anybody that is a believer in Christ. Um, as I was listening to this sermon, one of the things that I realized when Corey made his little detour about the brain and the hangups he has uh, Corey, you can call my office. I'm sure I can fit you in this week uh, to help you with those kinds of things. Okay? But it's amazing how God works. Um, Corey reminded me Friday night that, uh, hey, Kevin, you're doing communion on Sunday. And I went, yeah, you're right. And I started uh, praying about it and thinking about it and looking at it. And the uh, same passages that Corey was using today, God had me read yesterday without any knowledge of what he was doing. And in the Genesis uh, passage, if you read down a few more lines, it says the people of Israel bowed and worshiped God. Then we go over to Mark, and if you read a few more passages down from Mark that uh, Corey read about this morning, you read that they had the first communion. But before that, Jesus prayed, okay? Now I'm sure, you know, it's just a little line in there, and I like to look for subtleties in see what they actually mean. Jesus prayed. Okay? I'm sure he didn't say rub-a-dub-dub, thanks for the grub. Okay? He had a purpose in his prayer. Okay? What he said, I'm not going to bore you with the, the Hebrew translation because I can't pronounce it to begin with. I have trouble with my own name. Um, but it says, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Um, the life we lead doesn't have anything to do with things, doesn't have anything to do with objects. Okay? It tells us, this prayer tells us that your life does not consist of objects but the blessings you say over them, the thanks that you give for them. You say it doesn't matter how much or little you have on earth. What matters is how much thanks you give for what you have. The one who is rich in possessions but poor in thankfulness is in the end poor. 
But the one who is poor in possessions, but rich in giving thanks, is in fact rich. And what was the bread over which Messiah gave thanks? It was a symbol of his suffering and death. Yet he spoke a blessing over it and gave thanks for it. For those who give thanks in all things have the power to turn curses into blessings, sorrows into joy, to live a life of blessing. The Israelites did the Passover as one. We take communion as a community, as one. Okay. Sometimes we go, sorry, I can't say what you do. When I take communion, I thank God and I thank Jesus for dying on the cross and giving me life, bringing me out of my Egypt. At the same time, I'm learning that I've also got to thank God for the blessings that he has given us, he has given me. Okay, the blessing of a loving wife okay, who tolerates me, who can live with my humor, okay, and my GQ style of dressing. Um, okay, but we thank God for the blessings of our community right here in this room. We have each other. We know that if we're in our Egypt, there's somebody here who has come out of that same Egypt that can help us and support us. That's what we thank God for. We pray a blessing on the curses we have to be delivered from them out of Egypt. Okay. Now the band's going to play while we all take communion. So let's pray first. Heavenly Father, let us be mindful today as we take communion that you want a personal relationship with us and that you want to lead us out of our Egypt. Sometimes we as a band and as a church sing we are no longer slaves to sin. Let that be our rally cry today that you are freeing us and leading us out of our Egypt. In Jesus' holy name, thank you. Amen. And I will call 
oceans rise, my soul will rest in your embrace, for I am yours, and you are mine. Your grace abounds in deepest waters. Your sovereign hand will be my guide. Where feet may fail and fear surrounds me, you've never failed and you won't start now. So I will call upon your name and keep my eyes above the waves when oceans rise my soul. Spirit, lead me where my trust is without borders. Let me walk upon the waters wherever you would call me. Take me deeper than my feet could ever wander, and my faith will be made stronger in the presence of my me
tuning into Real Life Live. Our hope and prayer is that the time you've spent with us has left you encouraged and challenged in your faith. It may have also left you with some questions or maybe wondering how all this faith stuff works. So we want to help you with that. Head over to reallifecc.us for a few different ways we can connect. We're thankful you joined us today and want to extend an invitation for you to join us in person at our current home in El Dorado, Kansas at the Civic Center, 201 East Central on Sundays at 10 a.m. We hope You'll keep tuning in and growing in your faith to look more like Jesus every day. See you next time.